Let us now at this time turn to Mark, the book of Mark, and Mark chapter 6. In this chapter we read about John the Baptist, which will be the subject of the sermon. That's why we sang from Psalter number 240, considering the imprisonment of John the Baptist, which is recorded here in verses 14 through 29. The reading in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 32. So 1 through 32, and the scripture or the sermon text will be verses 14 through 29. 14 through 29. There in Mark chapter 6, we read this word of God. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only. No scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet, for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now the words of our text, verses 14 through 29. And King Herod heard of him, for his name, that's Jesus' name, was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded, he is risen from the dead. 
For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and had bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of said Herodias came in and danced, and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oaths' sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when, the disciple, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. That's as far as we read in Mark chapter 6. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his holy word. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read from Mark 6, Jesus gathered his apostles, his disciples together, he called them to him, and then he sent them forth preach. He gave them the mandate, preach the coming of the kingdom of heaven, preach that men must repent from their sin and believe in the word of the Old Testament, the promises of the Old Testament concerning that coming of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus also sent them forth to a specific place of labor. He did not let the apostles decide where they would go and preach, he sent them to the houses 
of the Jews in Galilee and told them to labor in the houses where they went and remain in those houses for a time. We're not told how they decided how long they would be there in the homes, but until the appointed time or until they were rejected by that home to which they went and move on then to another home. The Lord also sent them forth and instructed them not only regarding what they must do, where they must preach, but also the method by which they must do their work. He sent them forth by two and two so that when they went into the homes of God's people in Galilee, every word which the apostles preached would be confirmed in the mouth of the second apostle so that the home to which they went, both the parents and the children, could be sure that the word which they preached in the name of Jesus was true, true to the scriptures, true to Christ and to God. And fourthly, Jesus also commanded them in the context to go to those homes trusting that the Lord would support them with their earthly needs as they served the spiritual needs of the homes to which they were sent. Children, they were not allowed to take in their pockets any money. They couldn't hide any sandwiches in their, in their travel bag. Jesus said, no money, no food. Don't take two coats, believing, well, if this one wears out, I have a spare. Or if I get a little cold, I'll have an extra one. No. In the homes where you labor, I will take care of you through them as they hear my word through you and love me and rejoice in me. They will show that gratitude to the Lord by giving you the food that you need to eat, a place to sleep. If your walking stick breaks, they will provide another one. They will take care of your earthly needs. And that's still true today. The Lord sends forth his servants to preach his word in the way which he has commanded in the scriptures, sends those servants through his church to a congregation in the pulpit or through the church to a mission field, and those whom he serves, or in behalf of whom he serves, take care of the needs of God's servants still today. And thus, as they were commanded, the apostles went forth and preached obediently, did as the Lord commanded. And as we read towards the end of our scripture reading, they even reported on what they had done in obedience to the Lord. The question now we face is, why is this text here, verses 14 through 29, inserted at this point in the inspired word of God? The answer to that question lies in another question. What is a successful ministry? What do we consider a successful ministry of the word? What would we consider for the apostles a successful ministry of the word? Would a 40-year ministry, or as it was for John, one of the apostles of Christ, 
longer than that, all the way to the end of the first century, is that a successful ministry in comparison to a ministry of only about 24 months? Is it more successful that a minister baptizes perhaps 500 infants or adults, does hundreds of confessions of faith, officiates at many, many weddings, has thousands and thousands of sermons, serves for many, many years, produces many books and articles and gives many, many lectures on God's word and the Reformed faith. And then there's the other minister who maybe serves a year, 18 months, much less is his opportunity to write, any less baptisms, weddings, and so on. Is the one more successful than the other? Now, while we appreciate without question and very thankful to the Lord when the Lord grants to his church his faithful servants who do have the opportunity to serve the church well in many, many sermons, perhaps much writing as well. We think of some of the reformers and all of the material that's still available from them today, and we give thanks unto the Lord for that gift. But is that servant of God more faithful than the one who only has a very, very short ministry? The Lord teaches us in our text that the success of a minister of the word is not to be measured by the duration of his service in that office, nor is it to be measured by the material output. The same could be said of our own stations and calling in life, if not a minister of the word or an elder or deacon in the church, but as a mother in the home or a married couple who don't have children. Is our life as a married couple without children less successful than the one who has nine or ten children? What is true success, beloved, in our labors as office bearers in the church or in the office of believer? And we learn from the text that God measures that success in a far different way than we may be prone to do. We may be prone to look on outward considerations and say, wow, And another one, well, that's not a lot. And our response is not, wow. The Lord teaches us that spiritual success for the Christian is to be seen by the eye of faith and measured as God measures that according to the standard of the righteousness of Christ and according to his purpose with us, his servants, where he is pleased to put us in the church, his church. True success is illustrated for the apostles in this particular place in the inspired record after Jesus calls them, then gives to us an illustration, a clear example of true success in the service of Jesus Christ and his word. That true success characterized the beginning of the work of John the Baptist in his ministry and characterized the finish in his ministry. That was his faithfulness as a forerunner of Jesus Christ. 
for you and me in the office of believer, for those of us in the special office in the church. Our desire is that our continuation in that work, in that office, our stations and callings in life, and also our finish in that work in this life may be characterized by the same thing which characterized the ministry of John the Baptist. A finish in faithfulness. Though it was through terrible suffering, nevertheless, faithfulness through suffering and in the victory of the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in mind, we'll consider the text under this theme, from this perspective, the forerunner's finish. It was a finish in faithfulness, a finish through suffering, but a finish in victory. As we consider the faithfulness of John the Baptist, we need to remind ourselves of a few highlights concerning his life. First of all, John the Baptist was a prophet given to his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, as a miracle gift for the sake of the kingdom of God. He was born a Nazarite, born not long before Jesus was born, about six months before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was faithfully raised by his parents as a Nazarite from the womb, from his birth, for they believed the word of the prom word of the angel concerning him, his father not right away, but by grace he was given the faith when he was born to say, yes, he is John. He has been given for the purpose of being a prophet and a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they raised him in that hope and understanding, teaching him the Old Testament scriptures, all of them. So that by the time he became 30 years old, which is the age in which he began his ministry, John was ready to be an Old Testament preacher in the service of Jehovah. He knew what he needed to do, as his parents taught him. Even wore the clothing of an Old Testament prophet so that when the people saw him, they saw him as an Old Testament prophet like, for example, Elijah. John the Baptist, as Jesus taught his disciples, so John the Baptist did trust in the Lord to supply his earthly support. It wasn't through the homes in which John the Baptist labored always, but you children will remember that early on when he preached in the wilderness, his support came from what the Lord gave him in the wilderness, honey and locusts. And to our, perhaps our surprise as children, John did not complain about his food. He was very thankful for the locusts and the honey which God supplied him while he devoted himself in the service of the word of Jehovah. His pulpit was the wilderness. And there he called the Jews who gathered before him or the soldiers or even the Pharisees who came curiously to look at him to repent from their sin, which he exposed, and to believe in the promise of the word of God concerning the coming of the kingdom and their only escape from the coming wrath of God in the promised Christ, 
which he would point out later. His preaching was clear. His preaching was according to the Old Testament scriptures. And then he was given the privilege to baptize those who repented and made confession of their sin and their hope in what he preached from the scriptures. And he did that near the Jordan River. <coughs> Secondly, and more importantly, John was a prophet as the forerunner of the Lord. He had a specific duty with regard to the coming of Christ publicly among the Jews in Palestine. He preached to them in preparation for the coming of Christ until the day came when Jesus pointed him out in the multitude. The Spirit revealed to him, there is Jesus, and gave him the words to speak, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, which is the sin of the world of God's redemption. And so John the Baptist knew Jesus, his relative, as the Messiah. In fact, it was reconfirmed to him when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And he heard the voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my anointed servant, which he understood when the dove came from heaven and came upon Jesus. He was, he was anointed with the Spirit of Jehovah to be that prophet, priest, and king of Jehovah. And then, when Jesus began his public ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus overlapped for a few months until a man named Herod put John in prison. John labored in the area over which Herod, Herod at that time was ruler. He ruled over Galilee, we're told. He ruled over Perea, which was on the east side of the Jordan River, the east side of the Dead Sea. This particular Herod of the text was a son of the Herod the Great, who attempted to destroy Jesus by murdering the boys two years and under in Bethlehem. This Herod of the text, however, is Herod Antipas, this Herod had, we're told, sinfully married Herodias, formerly the wife of Philip, his brother. And this Herodias had a daughter, presumably through her first marriage with Philip. They lived, Herod, Herodias, and Salome, lived in the palace of Macarius on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And then also the Bible teaches us concerning this Herod, as was true of his father, Herod the Great, he was an Edomian, which means he was a descendant of Esau. And when we hear that, that tells us something about his spiritual character. Like his father, Herod the Great, he was an enemy of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God and the church, an enemy of the truth enemy of the word of God and the promises of God. This is the Herod who had put Jesus in prison and would be the Herod that would interview Jesus later and mock Jesus on the day Christ was crucified, showing his true spiritual character as the seed of Esau, the reprobate. 
Under that rule of Herod in Perea, John the Baptist labored in his ministry, we believe, in faithfulness. In contrast to the darkness and the wickedness of Herod. That faithfulness of John the Baptist is revealed in the text in five different ways. In the first place, the text makes clear that John the Baptist was faithful in his preaching. He preached the word of the coming kingdom of heaven. He was faithful in that instruction and preaching. In fact, we see how faithful he was when his own disciples came to him later when John was in prison and those disciples complained to John that the number of disciples that were following John was suddenly dwindling and the number of disciples following Jesus was growing very rapidly. John, in faithfulness, in his preaching and teaching, told his disciples, no, do not be jealous. Don't view that reality in frustration. This is how it must go. I am not the bridegroom of the church. He is. I am just a servant to him and his church. He must increase and I must decrease. Therefore, his disciples must increase. Mine must decrease. I am at a point where my work is almost finished. And thus John understood, even though he was the greatest Old Testament prophet, as Jesus said concerning him, he knew his relationship to Christ. He was just a servant who was not even worthy to untie the sandals of his Lord. He was faithful as a preacher and prophet of the word of his Lord. Secondly, we see that faithfulness in doing as the Lord had mandated him to be a mouthpiece of the Lord, to speak his word, in his rebuke to Herod the king. He was not afraid of Herod and his great power, although perhaps by nature he would, would have been, and certainly we would have been too. John the Baptist feared God, not men, and when he was given the opportunity, he rebuked Herod to his face for the sin which he had committed in marrying unlawfully his brother Philip's wife. That's his faithfulness, even though he knew there may be consequences to that. He still rebuked that man of great power and standing in that kingdom in Perea. In the third place, his faithfulness is evident in the conscience of Herod, which is recorded for us at the beginning of our text. After John was dead, then Herod began to hear about all of these miracles which were being done in the name of Jesus and began to hear about even what Jesus was doing. And although John had been beheaded and killed, Herod was convinced this is John. His disciples said, oh no. Or, or the servants of Herod said, no, this is another man or another prophet. No, Herod said, I am convinced. This is John. This is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. And that response of Herod, though as wicked as he was, that response 
is evidence that his conscience was still burdened and pricked by the word and the presence and the faithfulness and the holiness and example of John the Baptist. His conscience could not shake the reality he was responsible for putting a righteous man and a servant of God to death. Put him to death for the word which he had faithfully spoken. That guilty conscience shows that John was faithful. In the fourth place, we see the faithfulness of John in the wife, the unlawful wife of Herod and Herodias and her daughter Salome. Herodias hated John. Herodias wanted to kill John. Salome was in step with her mother, also wanted John out of the picture. This pair of Herodias and Salome remind us of Jezebel and Athaliah from the Old Testament, who also equally hated Elijah and the work which God did through faithful Elijah. Their hatred comes to its clear expression when after John had clearly condemned them for their wickedness and their covetousness, all of their evil, when the opportunity arose for them to put John to death. But then finally and positively, the faithfulness of John is evident in his own disciples. The disciples of John had been taught the word of God faithfully. They were taught the Old Testament scriptures, taught their hope in the coming death and atonement of the Lamb of God, which John pointed out, taught the hope that they had in him for the forgiveness of sins and for everlasting life. They knew the hope of the resurrection and the hope which even Job had confessed. John had taught to make their confession also. Through that instruction of John, the relationship between him and his disciples continued, at least those mentioned in the passage. And that friendship with John and their love to the Lord for that faithful servant of the Lord was evident in how they handled John after he died. No longer could they visit him in prison. No longer could they give him anything, words of encouragement or some gift of some sort for his health. Those days were finished. But yet in their last act towards him, they at least gave him some clothes as they embalmed his body and gave him a temporary home in the tomb waiting for the final resurrection. That shows that, yes, John was faithful and God reflects that in the love which his disciples showed to the Lord and to his faithful servant. That's the faithfulness, beloved, an example of the faithfulness which we desire and must seek. God, by his grace, will give unto us in our stations and callings in life. As believers, in the office of believer, God has called us to be prophets, to speak his word, 
We're called to live out of faith in Jesus Christ with a knowledge and a conviction of the Word of God. We're called to live in that understanding of the Word of God in our stations and callings in life, in the single life, in marriage, with children, without children, in school as a teacher or as a student under our faithful teachers, in our spheres of employment, in whatever area of life we may be, God has given us the duty to speak his word by expression, by example, and thereby to promote the word of God. Not ourselves, but like John the Baptist, Christ must increase and his word must increase and I, his servant, must fade away into the background so that the word of the Lord may be promoted over against ungodliness and false teaching. And if necessary, when that comes, we must, like John the Baptist, in humility before God and knowing our own weaknesses and sins, rebuke those who stray from the path of obedience to the Lord, seeking their repentance, seeking reconciliation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek to be faithful to the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then also in the special offices of the church. Seek to be faithful like John the Baptist. So that our focus, for example, as preachers is not on the quota of converts. Something like that. Or the number of baptisms. Or whatever we can put in our book of statistics. No, the focus is on the answer to this question. Did you do as I commanded you? Did you preach my word? Did you preach it faithfully, clearly, completely, in love to the flock, the sheep and the lambs? Did you defend the honor of my name? Did you decrease, make the word of the Lord Increase before his people. Were you faithful as a servant in the church? Not a Lord, but a servant to lead the sheep and the lambs to the bread and the water of life and to teach them that word. And when you erred, did you resist your pride, confess the error, change, reconcile, move on in the knowledge of our sin being covered in the blood of Christ, moving on in peace and unity in the Lord? Or to say it in the light of the text, did you have as a servant in the church, as an elder, deacon, or a minister of the word, did you desire to have as the motto of your service in my church this, as you began, so you finished, like John the Baptist, in faithfulness to me, trusting in me and my word. That's what John the Baptist did. 
And he did it through suffering. He did it through a great cost of suffering. He exposed the sin of Herod and Herodias. He told them and taught them this was a violation of the seventh commandment. Herod Antipas, to explain what actually happened here briefly, Herod Antipas was married. Herodias was married to Philip at this time or soon before the time that John was killed. Herodias and Philip lived in Rome. And Herodias, as she lusted for more power and glory and fame in the Roman Empire, and all the nobles of Rome saw that she could not achieve her covetous goals with her husband Philip, persuaded Herod to come to Rome. And then she had an illicit affair with him with the purpose of them making their plans to divorce each other's spouses and then get married and move back to Perea, there in her hope that she would increase her power and fame and glory in Palestine. But never saw that what they had done was despised by God. Nevertheless, they forsook their spouses and they married, even though Herod Antipas was the uncle of Herodias, they got married, but then faced John the Baptist, faced the Lord. John rebuked them. Your unlawful marriage is a violation of the word of God. We know from scripture that they violated Leviticus 20, verses 20 through 21, which forbade that close relatives may marry. But they also violated the seventh commandment in their illicit affair in Rome, and then they were guilty of divorce from their lawful spouses, and then guilty of remarriage and remarriage of someone already divorced. And so John rebuked them correctly, which Jesus supports later in the book of Mark. But for that faithfulness, he was put into prison. Herodias would have loved to get her hands on him and have him murdered, but she could not. Herod, to please his wife, would have loved to kill John, but he would not because Herod knew in the Roman world and their premium that they put on justice that John the Baptist was a righteous man. And if the Caesar ever found out that he put to death a righteous man, he could potentially lose his great position as king. So he held off. And instead, to appease his wife and to appease the multitude of the people who liked John, listened to him, and regarded him as a prophet, he put John in prison and would have John visit the palace on occasion to talk with Herod. That imprisonment lasted for about 15 months in which John was subjected to isolation and horrible prison conditions. Then as the text teaches, he paid for his faithfulness in his own death. For finally Herodias found an occasion to put John to death, which came about when Herod had a birthday party to which he invited all of his lords and generals and, and important people in his kingdom 
and then had his daughter Salome have a dance before them, satisfying their sexual lust. And when she was finished, Herod wickedly was pleased, so were his friends, and then rashly made that oath. Salome, I will give to you up to half of the kingdom anything you ask for, anything. At her age, we would think, a young lady would have asked for clothing. That would have been normal. Money, perhaps, or a new house, or something like that, something fancy, some jewels. But no, being trained by her mother, she goes to her mother, consults with her, and brings the request to Herod. And brings that request, the text teaches in verse 25, not reluctantly, not, what is my mother doing? She comes straightway with haste. She is in step with her wicked mother. She is of the same spiritual cloth as her mother and her father, an enemy of God and his word and his kingdom, and speaks out of that heart of evil to Herod, I will, not money, not clothing, not a diamond or something like that, no, the head of John the Baptist, the Nazarite, in a charger or on a meat plate. So when you think in this week of Thanksgiving, you think of the large plate in which we put all the meat, a meat plate. And on that meat plate, the head of John the Nazarite. Herod understood immediately that he had made a mistake. He is sorry, but with a sorrow to be repented of because Herod could not, like Herodias and Salome, speak the truth. He could not say, I have rashly sworn an oath. I am an evil, unrighteous man. John is a righteous man. And the proper thing to do here is my head should come off. And this man must go free. He is right. I am wrong. I should die. No, he doesn't speak the truth. He doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of the lords and the captains and the chief rulers of his kingdom. Wants to appease his wife. Orders the executioner to the prison who immediately takes the sword and cuts off the head of John the Baptist, puts it on the plate, hands it to Salome back at the palace, and Salome hands it to her mother who receives it triumphantly. There on the plate, is the head of John the Baptist with his, remember he was a Nazarite, with his hair. That's a reminder, beloved, when the church of Jesus Christ is faithful, whether it be in the special office of the church or in the office of believer, makes no difference, you and I will suffer. We will suffer reproach for faithfulness, obedience, out of faith, in Jesus Christ, to his word. You will suffer. Negatively, that means we pray that our suffering may never be because of our sin, because of our pride or our error. May that never be. If we are to suffer, may it be because you are faithful to this. 
The word of God which doesn't change. Its glory, its power, its value is unchangeable. May it be for the word of God that you are mocked, you are dismissed, you lose your job or maybe your business. You're ridiculed. Your reputation is shredded. You are shunned, perhaps even. Or maybe even you will lose your head or your life for this, for the word of God. John did that. He finished his ministry in faithfulness by remember the work of the Lord. Let's be clear on that. This faithfulness of John the Baptist was the work of the Holy Spirit through him by grace and through the very word which he preached and which he served. The Lord worked that faithfulness even in John through his suffering in prison, showing that the Lord is faithful. And that's the only reason why John or you and I could ever be faithful to him. John was in prison for 15 months. And in that time in prison, we know from the book of John, or from other passages in Scripture, the book of Luke, that John was not always so sure that the Jesus whom he pointed out was the Christ. Luke chapter 7, he asked Jesus this question through a delegation of his disciples. Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? And that might be totally perplexing to us. John, don't you remember the voice from heaven and the dove there in the Jordan River? And yet, beloved, let us not be too hasty to ask that question because we have the truth, all of it, here. And is our faith, are we so convinced of that word always, ourselves? And so John asked that question, really asked that question with the motive that Jesus would dispel his doubt by his word. And the Lord responds positively in Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Go tell John, Jesus said, what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The word is going out. The Christ is doing his work. The gospel is sure. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. And that's the word which worked in John a resolute, enduring faith right to the end. Now you might say, well, where does it say that in the text? That right to the end his doubt was dispelled? Yes, it's right there in the text. We think about it. There's this little bit of information here that tells us that John was received into the palace of Herod from time to time. And we're even told that Herod received 
John gladly. Started to become kind of friendly with John. Brought John into the palace. Oh, how nice that palace was. All the beautiful architecture, all the fine food and the wonderful clothing, and everybody seemed so healthy, and they always had good sleep, such a comfortable life. Herod continued numerous times to call John into that environment and let him speak. But each time, John would not retract what he said. He would not deny the word of God concerning that sin of Herod and Herodians. They were in violation of the word of God, even concerning their marriage, their unlawful marriage. And he could have in his mind reasoned, well, it's not such a big deal, or they're the, who am I to say that they're in error? No. Each time, he would not consider retracting his charge, which if he had, he could have stayed in the palace, had the food, enjoyed the company, worn the fine clothing, restored his health again. It would not have to be sent into that dark, damp, the dark dungeon, loneliness, the isolation, being forgotten, wondering if the Lord, perhaps, in his times of despondency, has the Lord forgotten to be kind, facing those temptations again? Yes, he was willing to suffer right to the end. And that's the fruit of the power of that word of Jesus Christ in him as the forerunner of the Lord. He would not retract. That's the loyalty, beloved, to the word of God that we must have. A loyalty which is not natural. Naturally, we would surely deny the word of God. We would surely come up with an excuse. Well, I don't need to do this Though the Bible says this, but it doesn't apply to me in this situation in my life, we'll come up with all kinds of reasons to excuse ourselves from not having to follow the word of God at this time in my life or that time in my life. And we would be like Herod. We'll save our face. We'll take the easy way out. Beloved, it's for that unbelief In John, yes, but also in us. Christ in the passage, he took upon himself. He died for us who dare to deny the certainty and the power of the word of God. and to be consumed by the wrath of God for us who deserve that in order to deliver us from the guilt of that unbelief. And then arose by his, rose again the third day, and by the Holy Spirit he gives us that new life, righteousness, holiness, and truth, truth of his word. So that by his spirit, when the word comes to us, his word, that word, works powerfully in you and me to overcome that unbelief that is still with us 
all the days of this life till the end. We need, beloved, to understand that our faithfulness to the Lord in his word and whatever station and calling God has put you, that depends entirely upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. He will be faithful to you all the days of your life, right to the end, even through suffering, to preserve you, so that when you are faced with God's children, the, the situation that you might lose your head for the word, he will keep you faithful. Herodias got the head of John the Baptist as a trophy. She was victorious. She finally overcame. That may be true of the world for us too. They may get you and triumph. But remember, thirdly this morning, we end in victory. Outwardly, it doesn't appear that way. It didn't appear that way for John. He was the greatest Old Testament prophet, and yet he wasn't brought into heaven with a whirlwind and a chariot and flaming chariot and angels like Elijah was. Jesus didn't run over to the, the dungeon in Macarius and release John from prison or call angels down from heaven and open the prison and have him come out. No. It appeared that Herodias had the victory. And so it is today, it appears that the world has the victory. And the word of Christ is the loser. And you as a servant of that word have been defeated. But beloved, it's not so. If we look outwardly at the situation, even in history today, it looks like as a church of Jesus Christ, we're defeated and the word has failed. But by faith, no. Herod could not escape the power of that word to condemn him. His conscience continued to be pricked to his death, to his condemnation. So the faithful church of Jesus Christ been preaching the word. The word goes forth. It convicts. It judges. It condemns the world in which we live. Brings them under in judgment. And though they may think they've won, they're, they're triumphant. They lie under God's judgment, under his curse to their condemnation. The victory belongs to the word of Jesus Christ and to us whom God has graciously made servants by the blood and the spirit of Christ. The church has the victory in the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that word will accomplish exactly what God has declared, even in those, beloved, who may go wayward, of his sheep. The word will rescue us and bring us back to him and his word. The church has the victory. The preacher of the gospel, the elder, the deacon, you and I in the office of believer, the victory in the word of Jesus Christ. That victory can be seen and what happens to the body of John the Baptist. In verse 29, the disciples come and they bury the body of John. 
might seem rather more like a defeat. No. That's why that's included here in the passage. Verse 29, we look at that by faith in what John taught his disciples about Job chapter 19. In this flesh, I will see God, though men may behead me. As John would confess, in this body, I will see God. And his burial is a testimony to the faith of John and his disciples in the certainty of the word of God that there is a final resurrection for you and for me. For Christ will display that he has the last word in this battle between the world and the church. A word of victory. Therefore, beloved, go forward then in the hope in Jesus Christ, that his word is sure, and in your service to that word, whatever station and calling you may be, may your finish be like the forerunners in faithfulness, through suffering, and in victory by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Let us pray. O most merciful and faithful and gracious Father in heaven, thou be faithful unto us for thy mercy's sake, so that we by thy spirit may be faithful to thee in all humility and thankfulness. For Jesus' sake, amen.